I'm like, well, he's going to go behind that smaller one, that smaller tree. As soon as his head's behind it, I'm going to rip this bow back. And that's what happened. He went behind it. I pulled my bow back. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris. And today we have somebody that you're going to recognize from a former podcast. We have Zach Kurtzalls on. Hey, Zach, how's it going, buddy? Real good, Danny. How are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. Um, so when we had Zach on last time, everybody, um, I believe he was director of engineering right at that time. It was just before a promotion to VP of operations, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we were discussing some brand new bows that were going to be coming out. And Zach was had his engineering hat on and was walking us through some of the new design and, and engineering elements on, uh, on the new bows. Um, some big things have happened at Hoyt since that time. Uh, Randy Walk, who has been with the company for 36 years and been president of the company for 26 years, announced his retirement this last summer. And I'm going to tell you right now, when he announced his retirement, I kind of took a huge deep breath and said, oh, crap, what what direction are we going to go in? Um, one of the things that I've always appreciated the most about Hoyt was that Hoyt's leaders, the leadership team, consisted of hardcore bow hunters, not guys that were pretenders, not guys that kind of did it as a hobby every now and again. That's their passion. And it's one of the things that always made it easiest for me to relate to Hoyt. Um, and I didn't know who was coming. The next thing I know, there's a press release that comes out that says Zach Kurtzalls has been announced as the new president of Hoyt. And he's been in that role for a few months now. Um, the first time that I ever hunted with Zach was back in either 2015 or 2016. Um, I'd known him before then, uh, just from trade shows and whatnot, but Zach is a bow hunter. He is a bow hunter and you know, there's, there's all of these other things that are required of a person to run a big successful manufacturing company like this. You've got to be a marketing guy. You got to be an engineer. You got to be an R and D guy. You got to be a customer service guy. You've got to be HR, all kinds of different things, but finding that person with those qualifications who is also at his core, a hardcore bow hunter can be hard to do. It's a, it's a unique skill set, and marrying that passion with that skill set is where really cool things happen. And just so everybody knows, I'm tickled to death that Zach is in this position. Um, so how's the, uh, how's the first few months gone, Zach? Do you still have your hair? <laughs> yeah, I still have my hair. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting because while, while I'm not a marketing guy, um, you know, I came up through this company as a, from an engineering perspective, like you said before, and, and uh, I think... I think being in this role is really about um, how you assemble a really strong team yeah. and, 
And lucky for me, Randy had already assembled a really strong team. So, you know, this, this job's about, you know, Hoyt future is about innovation. Um, it's about quality and it's about this unbelievable team that, that I get the opportunity to lead. So while I, I, you know, I like to think that, uh, you know, I've got an expert that runs my marketing department and that's, you know, that's Jeremy Eldridge. And then there's Tom Driffle runs our sales department and Brian Gold took the torch from, from me on the engineering side. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. If I didn't have a really strong team, I probably would have lost all my hair by now, but, uh, in the, in the space of, you know, taking over this chair and this company, um, not possible without a really strong team. So yeah, I think everything's going good. It's been July 19th was my first day in this chair and here we are on October 20th. So right. Going good. Well, um, just to give everybody just a little bit of a history lesson in Hoyt. So Hoyt's always been an engineering focused company. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Zach. Mm, but that's true. They've had a heavy engineering focus. Earl Hoyt Jr., um, the company's namesake, was an engineer. And one, uh, a few of the biggest things that he did, I mean, he, was, he has all kinds of archery patents from back in, what, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, even some into the, into the 70s. Um, and... He was uh, he was the one that when when archery came back into the Olympics way back in 1972, Hoyt wasn't the monster that it is now. It wasn't a big archery company. It wasn't uh, it wasn't even one of the top names in the in the industry at that time. Um, but Earl Hoyt Jr. saw the Olympics as a place where he could prove his uh, uh, prove his products basically and he established relationships with the Olympic shooters at the time um, they were shooting Hoyt bows the 1972 Olympics were won by the men's and women's were won by Hoyt shooters um, and ever since then uh, the medal count has been dominated by Hoyt absolutely dominated um, and the transition, uh, when Easton eventually bought Hoyt, um, there was, uh, there, there was another guy that came in for a short time, uh, two other guys, Joe, Joe Johnston. He was actually there for quite some time and then Eric Watts. But when Randy w- rolled along, Randy was an archery brat that had been, uh, raised by two hardcore bow hunters. Uh, his dad owned an archery shop and he was, uh, he, he was hired at Hoyt as a part-time bow builder, uh, while he was going through engineering school and he got his engineering degree. He went to work for Hoyt as an engineer. Um, and when he eventually became the president of the company, this was an engineer and a hardcore bow hunter and archer who was made the president. So the, of course the company had a pretty stiff engineering focus and man, the innovations really came during his tenure. And now what I like about what I really like about this move is that you're this, you're the same type. You, you got this job directly out of engineering school. You discovered that you wanted to be uh, an engineer 
while you were in college, right? Or uh, an archery engineer while you were in college. Tell us kind of how that happened. Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up, I never, I never shot archery and I, I didn't hunt big game. I was a, I was a bird hunter and a, I'd saw, I'd say a, a small stream fisherman, like a trout fisherman, but, um, you know, my, my whole story is, you know, if you talk about, uh, growing up and where it came from, it's, you know, it's a story about a single mom. Um, I met a girl in, in college and then, uh, my engineering degree and, and the girl just so happened, um, her dad owned an archery shop and I think I was 21 when we met. Um, yeah. And, you know, I fell in love with archery pretty quick. It took, uh, I went, I joined them at their hunting camp, which they had a cabin, uh, up in Lake Almanor, which is in Northern California. And, uh, I joined them at that cabin. And of course, everybody else was going out hunting every morning and I was just hanging out because I didn't have a tag. But, uh, so while I was bored, I just picked up some, somebody's bow, their backup and started shooting it at a 3d target. And, you know, I had some pretty good teachers in that space. You know, her dad had been, gosh, I don't remember how long Bill's shop was open, but it was a long dang time. Right. So having him there as a, you know, somebody to sort of get me off on the right foot, man, it, it really did. It came easy to me and I really enjoyed it. And so man, the next year I killed my first deer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was 22. Um, I don't remember what year that was. Probably 96 ish, Mm -hmm. 97, somewhere in there. So that sort of lit the fire in me. Um, you know, I already had the hunting passion, um, and the passion for the outdoors, but, but that really, that really started me down this path. And then I don't know, probably, uh, you know, Bill always go to the trade show every year. And, yeah. uh, as I had been hanging around for a couple of years, he invited me to go with him. I was shooting all of the local target stuff. And, you know, I was representing his shop as a shop shooter and, and those types of things. And so he invited me along to the ATA and, and, uh, I think it was about the second, t- the second year that I went, I started thinking like, man, this is, this would be cool. You know, yeah. Um, when I started school, I was an ag major, like, uh, ag, ag business, ag, uh, <clears throat> ag engineering. Mm-hmm. And so I was pretty bored with that though. It wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean, I love agriculture. It's where my roots are, but, um, moved into the, into the engineering side of things. And when I did that, I, it was about the same time as when I decided I wanted to, to, to get into this archery game. Yeah. And so I took the opportunity of being able to go to the trade show and I introduced myself to some people at Hoyt at the time it was Jason Fogg. I didn't meet Randy at the time. I didn't, I mean, I, the person I needed to be in touch with was the guy running the engineering department. So I, uh, I gave, you know, I made my contact with him and I just stayed in contact. I had about two or two and a half years left in school and, um, man, I sent him an, I'd send him an email every, at the end of every semester and just say, Hey, I'm still here. And I still want to come work for you. And, uh, in the, in the summer or the spring, I guess of 2003, Jason Fogg gave me a phone call. And then that turned into an interview on the phone, which turned into a flight to the factory and an interview at the factory, which turned into a job that started in, in June of, uh, 2003 was my first, uh, June 18th. 2003 was my first day at Hoyt. Prior to that ATA show, did you even realize that 
being an archery engineer could be a thing? I, I just never really considered it. Right. I, so I would probably say the answer is no. And it wasn't something that um, I considered, but, you know, as, as, as I kind of, I guess, as I took inventory of what was around me and that, and as it became more and more of a passion for me, um, it became really like, Hey, this would be really cool if I could work in this industry. Sure. Uh, so, so yeah, I don't think the, I, the first year I went or the, maybe even the second year, uh, it wasn't, I wasn't in that space yet. There was not very many bow companies at the time that had teams of engineers. That's true. Um, and it had to have been, was how long did it take you to figure out that Hoyt was really the company that was leading the way in the archery industry, as far as engineering went in their engineering mm, program. I, I had a, my father-in-law was, is, uh, you know, he's a pretty opinionated guy. And having been in the industry for a long time, you know, he set me down the path of like, I don't sell other bows. I sell Hoyt bows and <laughs> I sell Hoyt bows because of the quality and the engineering and those types of things. And so, you know, it's kind of like when you're a kid and it's like dad drives Chevy's, Yeah, you know, I yeah. drive Chevy's or GMC's, yeah. right? Cause that's what dad drove and that's what grandpa drove. And so right. when, when, uh, when Bill introduced me, you know, into that side of the business, it was just, it's like, yeah, it's Hoyt. There is no other option. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe there would have been, you know, had this, had this seat, you know, had the Hoyt side not worked out, but that never was a issue for me. Right. Right. Well, um, so tell us a little bit about, uh, the transition from going from fledgling engineer during that time and kind of what you're, you know, what you were working on at that time. And, you, you know, this, this transition, did you have any, did you have any thought when you first started? Oh man, one day I might be the president of this thing. Did, did that even occur to you? I don't, I don't think I really let myself get there. Um, when I graduated college, I was 28. And so i I was obviously a lot older than a, a lot of the kids coming out of school at the time. You know, I cut my teeth in the equipment business. Um, I mean, I was a heavy haul truck driver in school when I was putting myself through college, um, worked in the equipment business and got, you know, started in, in the management side of things at that point in time. And so when I got my when I became a product engineer in, uh, at Hoyt, I, I had my eye on some sort of a management position. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of like, that's my goal. I didn't really have a time frame. I loved what I was doing. I was designing products, you know, on, on all sides. And um, so, yeah, it, it was, it was something that was interesting to me. I liked managing people when I had a chance to do it beforehand. And so, but did I ever think at that point that I was going to be the president? I mean, I was, you know, I was the new guy. Sure. And there was some, there was some pretty, um, there was some people here that had some pretty serious tenure and, and, you know, it kind of looked like, uh, I think that's probably going to go this way or that way. And then, you know, of course, 18 years later, those things change and sure here we are. So tell us about your path. Um, basically from the, after you started it as, as a, uh, as a product engineer, uh, kind of how you moved up through the company and, what additional responsibilities you took on during that time? So from the product engineering role, the first 
um, extra responsibility I was given was as a, we called it, we had, we ran value streams back then. And so accessories was a value stream and compound was a value stream and recurve was a value stream. And so that's kind of how we broke it up. And I was running the accessories value stream. And so I had a couple of probably three direct reports uh, at that point in time. And I was running most of the engineering myself across the design and engineering work in the, on the, on the accessory side of the business. And then and I'm not going to give you timelines to be honest, cause I don't right. remember like the years and when stuff, when I moved, when I moved, um, I started, Randy asked me, I think the next foray was at some point we dissolved those value stream idea and we kind of just became a more focused team again. And at, and then Randy asked me to be the assistant engineering manager. It was a, it was when, when Jason Fogg left, mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact timeline, but, um, you know, he asked me if I wanted the, a shot at it. And I said, absolutely. And so he put me into an assistant role and just reporting to him. And then, and then from there, I was that assistant for about three months. And then he gave me the title of product engineering manager. And then, um, you know, as, as time went by, he gave me the, uh, oversight of the manufacturing engineering department and then the quality department and kind of throughout these additions, right. This is kind of how my title evolved. I became the director of engineering when I picked up the manufacturing side. Um, then I became, you know, then I picked up quality and then I picked up machine shop and pretty soon it was now I was the director of operations. And then I picked up the, um, the supply chain team. And at that point it was like, you've, I kind of owned well, and the manufacturing team. So I had, you know, at the same time I picked up the machine shop, uh, I picked up overall manufacturing. And so once I got to that point, that's when they moved in and, and gave me the VP role of operations somewhere in there. I think he made me a VP of engineering, but, um, that was kind of my path right. and, and that operations role, it's just, you know, when the, the amount that the business view for me opened up mm-hmm. was really when I took over the supply chain department, like I knew the ops stuff and I knew the engineering stuff and I had a, I had a pretty good handle on that. But like when you, when I really got to see what the whole picture looks like, right. Uh, it was supply chain and, and, you know, today supply chain is a, it's a tough world, but right. uh, I've, we've got a great team there and, and I still talk to them every day. Right. So, right. Yeah. So there's my uh, five minute speech on product engineer to president. Well, and, you know, for somebody who's never been in and seen Hoyt's operation and, and just for those of you listening that never have had an opportunity to do this, um, if you're ever in Salt Lake, it's really cool. That building is built, uh, the Hoyt, the Hoyt building so that you can tour everything. It, it is built for tours and you can have people walking through there and looking at the, uh, looking at all the processes kind of up from a mezzanine as everybody's working. And when he's talking about supply chain, I mean, you, it, it, uh, your average guy, myself, before I ever went in there, uh, you have, you, you think, okay, there's some cams, there's some uh, bow risers, there's some limbs. Holy smokes, man. There is so much in there. And, and 
I mean, a warehouse full of all these little parts that have to come from somewhere. It's just, it's, it's amazing how it all comes together. It is so much bigger than you originally perceive before you walk in there and look around. And I get the feeling, even if you work there for 18 years, if you go into the next apartment, all of a sudden it's bigger than you realized even after being there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just the complexity. You're right. Like, you know, I think those of us that spent time working in a bow shop, we have this perception of what it takes to put a, put a bow together, right? I mean, yeah. if you've worked in a shop long enough and you're a solid tech, you can tear one, tear one apart and put it back together. And so it's just kind of like, we've all did it and we did it in these small spaces. And then when you roll in here, it's like, you know, it's, there's a lot more to it. There's, there's just a, a lot. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but that, that supply chain really gave me a, 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 I guess the, the big bird's eye view of the business. Sure. Well, I want to get to talking to, uh, about something that uh, all the listeners of the Hoyt bow hunting podcast are going to be more interested in hearing about, and that's some, some bow hunting, but uh, one big question I have for you. And just like I said, at the beginning, one of the reasons that I was, I always felt endeared to Hoyt was because of the fact that I knew once I met the leadership and once I really realized that, man, that entire engineering team, they're a bunch of bow hunters. It meant something to me. How important do you think it is that um, someone in your position or members of your executive team are actual bow hunters? Because to, to us bow hunters, this isn't just a sport. This is a culture. This is a heritage. This is something where if you're not a member of it, you can't really relate in my opinion, it, it, that's how we feel, you know, um, it, it's, it's hard for somebody coming from some other industry, uh, tools or whatever to just step in here and they might know manufacturing. They might have all the skills that it takes to, to run the company, but they still don't have that fundamental perspective of a bow hunter. How important is that? And, and how does it affect the business, the fact that you've got a team of guys that are passionate about it? Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a balance. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sitting in this chair today because I'm a bow hunter, but it certainly no. didn't hurt my ability or hurt my opportunity to, uh, to become the president of Hoyt. Do I think it's important? I do. And I think it's important because, you know, like you said, it is a, it is a passionate hobby you know, bow hunting is more than a hobby, you know, yeah. it's, it, and it's, if people that, that don't do it might, might disagree with me there, but it's just, it's almost like it's woven into the fabric of who we are, right? It's just this, it's different. And yes. so I think for people to really understand, I mean, there's great marketing people who, who aren't bow hunters who could market our products well, but having a bow hunter, it just gets you to the next level. Or having a sales guy that's a bow hunter, it just gets you to the next level because there's a there's some level of understanding about what it means for a guy to drop that money uh, at the bow shop, what his expectations what or what us. or what her expectation yeah. is, right? And so um, it's really important. And I think you know what I've said over the years is is engineers, you know, we always hired engineers that were that were bow hunters. And it's, they use the product, they understand the product. It's, I think it's a, it is critical in that department. 
Um, and it's beneficial in every other place, you know, if it, even on, even on the factory floor where you got, you know, men and women putting parts together, like there's people out there that hunt and there's people out there that don't. And the ones that don't, that's fine. You know, they do a great job for us too. Um, but the ones that do, you know, they're, they have a different level of engagement with the products. Right. Right. So I think, I think that's what you just benefit from when you hire people that, that, love the things that we, I mean, we build, we build bows, right? We build archery equipment. And if you love archery, man, it, it makes the job that much easier to show up for every day and that much easier to just fall in love with our products and, and our consumers. Right. And you, I mean, there's a, there's, there's bound to be just a different level of, if you're a bow hunter, you care. You, you care, you know, that this bow is going out to somebody who is going on a trip that they basically can have wanted to do for a lifetime. You know, that there's, uh, that when they're getting the shot at the buck that they've working, uh, they've been working all summer long, all fall long to get a shot at him. How much goes into that? You know what I mean? And they, and I just can't help but think that they want to get it right. They want to get everything right. Um, so tell us a little bit about your bow hunting now, like, you know, from college on kind of how you got more into it. And, and, and we're going to talk about Zach's elk hunt here in just a few minutes. Cause he just came back off of an elk hunt where he embarrassed me just a little bit. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, but uh, let's talk about, you know, kind of how you transitioned and, and continued to do more bow hunting and, what species you kind of really like to go after? Yeah. So in Northern California, you know, we hunted everything east of I-5, everything east of Interstate 5 is considered a mule deer, but Mm -hmm. there, you know, as I've hunted mule deer over the years, what I've, what I've learned is there's a lot of different mule deer out there. And I don't know if the California deer is a hybrid with the, you know, the black Black tails that are on the West side, but um, from a body size, uh, they sure seem like it, you know, uh, I got in, I think when I got working at Hoyt of, obviously I was around a bunch of people that love to hunt. And mm-hmm. so just more opportunities and, and, um, you know, I, we were doing a rifle hunt every year up in Wyoming, which was like a seven mile backpack in, we'd stay in there for a week and, and do that type of a hunt, uh, bow hunted it a couple of years and then just got my revenge. <laughs> after the bow hunt kicked my butt yeah but learned a lot you know spot and stock mule deer hunting's no joke uh did a lot of that i've uh, done a little bit of whitetail hunting not a ton i love it uh i'm not super great at sitting in a tree stand all day but i appreciate those that are good at it um <laughs> but uh you know I, I think my love the thing that i love to hunt the most is is elk and there's just they're just different you know the it's the it's the interaction with the animal instead of just sneaking up on them it's you know you're being a part of what they're doing and so i it creates a closeness that uh, the other species that i've hunted um haven't really created to me i i would i would bet that whitetail guys feel the same way when they you know like you talk about like uh, something that was new to me was that a whitetail um guy or expert was they just focus on that deer like i'm gonna hunt that deer or maybe a couple of deer and what they do for the whole year setting up the food plots putting stands in locations all of that 
is all about that one deer. And so there's that preparation. There's that um, intimate knowledge of, you know, they know where that deer lives. They know the, 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 the things that that deer does. And so I'm guessing that that's, you know, people get spun out about whitetail. Yeah. It's a different, um, when you are hunting one animal like that and, you know, unlike elk, whitetail deer in most parts of the country are are, in some parts of the country, they're born and raised in the same square mile, born, raised and die in the same square mile. Um, in the West where I hunt them a lot, you know, Eastern Colorado, Western Kansas, it's a much bigger area than that, but they're still right around that same core area. They don't travel as much as elk. So you do get to know them. You get, you you know, Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, there's a bond, if you want to call it, when you have, we've got one right now here in Eastern Colorado that we call unibrow. He's nine and a half years old. He's not going to score worth a crap. He's (laughs) this year. He's actually a seven point. He's got tremendous mass and we have, I kid you not, that deer has nine lives. Um, my son, Casey, and I just a couple of weeks ago came very close to getting a shot at him again. My buddy Donman has almost killed him three different times. Um, and yeah, we're, we've got a kindred deal with that, with that buck. You know what I mean? Um, but I know what you're talking about when it comes to elk. Um, it's the vocalization. Uh, and, and the same thing happens with me a little bit with turkeys and, you know, I've, I've said it on here plenty of different times when I'm asked what species is my favorite, it's elk. And the reason for that is, is because with elk, there's some things that happen to you that just don't happen with, with other species, in my opinion, specifically because they're bugling. And sometimes I've said, I wish a whitetail would bugle, man, that'd be awesome. If a whitetail would bugle, that would be totally awesome. But when you're standing there and you hear this thing coming and you're talking back and forth with it, especially when you get to the point where that thing is close enough to where you feel the vibration of those, of the bugle on your skin, it feels like the ground is shaking underneath you sometimes. And you can't see that animal yet it melts you. It melts. It literally melts you. Like you, all of the training that you do, all of the time that you spend shooting and and trying to train yourself to be calm in that moment, it's almost impossible. There there are some guys that have ice in their blood uh, who can just turn it off. I'm not very capable of it. I feel like elk are the kings of anticipation. Um, there might be some other species like brown bear, for instance, that, you know, you get in tight on a brown bear. There's some adrenaline that's going there, but it's not anticipation. It's, it's fear. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's different. For it's sure. different. Uh, but with elk, it's, it's pure anticipation. It's pure anticipation. So this year I went on an elk hunt and I killed a nice bull, uh, here in Colorado and, me and Zach were going to be talking one afternoon and I was all pumped up to show Zach this bull. And so I show Zach my bull and I'm all proud. And he, I didn't even know that he, I I guess somebody had mentioned that he had killed a bull. He shows me this bull and Holy smokes, man, it is, it is a beauty. It was one of those things where 
I'm showing Zach my bull. He shows me his. My phone goes right back in my pocket. <laughs> and, you know, at, when, as you're hearing me talk about this, you might be thinking, well, yeah, he's the Hoyt president. Who knows what, who knows what kind of ranch or reservation that he had access to or something like that? Well, folks, uh, no. Um, Zach saved his points just like we do. He drew a tag in Wyoming just like we would. And he went out there on a public land DIY hunt and he killed this freaking stud bull. Uh, I don't know what he scores, but he's a beautiful seven by seven or se- is he seven by seven, seven yeah. by seven. Yep. And um, he uh, it, with long sweeping main beams. And I want to hear I want to hear about that hunt and uh, who you were with and kind of how it went down. Yeah, so it was. uh in the Shirley Mountains of Wyoming, it was a unit that one of the guys, one of the engineers here, Daniel Anselmo, had hunted the previous year, and and he had a a really great experience. And so, um, I had max points. I'd been putting in for elk or buying points for elk in Wyoming since they started running a point system, which I think was about fifteen or sixteen points, is what I had. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was a it's an awesome, very cool unit. Um, I hunted. You know, my hunting partners were, were Daniel. Um, he gave me so much information just from what he learned. And then, uh, and then Darren Cooper is, uh, he's a good friend of mine. He, uh, he was an engineer at Hoyt when I started at Hoyt and we've remained really, really close friends over the years. And so we pretty much plan all of our hunts together every year, Darren and I do. And, uh, we kind of got to this place where it was like, why do we, kill ourselves to try to kill two bulls every year when we go somewhere why don't we just why don't we just focus on one and right. then we can like we can elongate this amount of time that we get to hunt really good bulls and really good on really good units as we draw out because you know coop coop is what we call him right his last name's cooper he uh he's got points in nevada and and arizona and all of these other states where i don't but i get to i'm gonna get to go to those so anyway that's kind of what we we do as a, as a group of buddies. And, and I think that means a lot to me. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a hardcore solo hunter. I, right. I really enjoy the experience with buddies being out there and, and sharing those successes with them. Right. Um, so, you know, fast forward September 3rd, I, I drove up, got my trailer parked up there and, and, uh, got everything ready to go. And we hunted, we started hunting on September 4th and, uh, it was the fifth day of the hunt was the seventh or the eighth i can't remember i think it was the eighth my uh, birthday this was a wednesday yeah it was a wednesday it, that's and that, uh, by the way is a terrible day for me like for what it, you know i've always wanted to take a nice birthday bull because i'm usually hunting on my birthday and it, if there's a storm gonna hit if it's gonna have a rainy day if something bad's gonna happen that's the day that it happens to me it's just <laughs> anyway a little tidbit well, it worked out for me. <laughs> so uh, you killed my birthday bull. Yeah. So Coop had uh, a prior engagement. He actually had to fly home on Tuesday evening, and uh, his daughter was getting married, and um, so it was just Daniel and I were up there, and and uh, you know, middle of the night, Daniel got up to to go outside, and and uh, he heard he heard a bull bugle, and it was up above camp, and you know, I 
probably a, maybe, maybe a half mile off is probably about where he heard this bull super quiet morning, no wind at all. It was about three in the morning. And, and, uh, so Daniel had decided that we were going to go check that out. And so that, that next morning, uh, we got up about four 30 and got everything ready to go. And, and, uh, we headed off to, to pick up the bottom of this drainage and we were just going to work our way up through the drainage so that, you know, cause we didn't know where he was at this point. We just knew yeah. he was in up that spe- certain area. Yeah. And so, uh, we started working our way up that drainage and, uh, you know, we were bugling every 15 or I'm sorry, every hundred yards or so just yeah. kind of working our way up, making sure that we weren't moving too fast and miss something. And we kind of popped out of this little small group of pinions and, uh, and there he was, he was about four or 500 yards above us, right at the top of this drainage, this basin almost. Um, which is, it's interesting to note, like the Shirley mountains are a really neat place. They, they look big, but they're really like this, they're really compact. So you look, you know, I, if I could describe this basin, it looks like this big giant mule deer basin, but it's like 500 yards across right? and maybe four or 500 yards up from where I was. Right. And so it's a really neat, um, unit from that. It's really, uh, um, I don't know. It disguises itself as a smaller, smaller, um, environment. So anyway, he's four or 500 yards ahead of us and they were just kind of working their way. The, do- the, uh, the dose, the cows were working their way across the top of this basin and, and sort of they're headed off to bed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we started, so we kind of let them do that. And at that point we knew he was a shooter. We, right. we had a, we got a decent look at him, but we weren't, we didn't know he was a seven point at this time. Right. Until we talked about it later. But um, as he walked away, it was like, oh, man, like Big we need to. Yeah, we need to put some time in here. And, uh, you know, it's funny. You and I have talked about this before, but man, elk hunting is about it's so hard to kill a bull during daylight. I mean, yeah. not during daylight, but like during the morning part of the day, because the middle elk are, of the day. Yeah, they're just moving off. And, you know, they've been up since they've been up goofing off and rutting since three in the morning and they work their way by the time we get to hunt them in daylight their work they're headed to bed yeah and so a lot of times um, you're playing chase and you can't yeah you would think these elk are just moseying up this hill and you'd think (laughs) okay we can get up there before them and beat them no Mm -mm. nine ninety nine percent of the time you're not going to beat them to where they're going. You're going to be playing chase and yeah. getting a big bull that has a bunch of cows turned around to come back down toward you is in a lot of it's cases. Impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. Unless he thinks that you're a threat or unless you can get some of his cows behind you and yeah. get in between them, uh, yeah. it, it's, it's tough. So, so anyway, we worked our way around into the next drainage, Daniel and I did and, and started, and you know, it was, we weren't just, all of a sudden hunting this bull, we were still hunting along and moving our way up. And what we were trying to do was get around the backside of that basin that him and those cows went over so that we could, um, try to interact with him. Cause we knew there was a big timber pocket over there that they were probably going to bed in. And, you know, as we worked our way around that backside, it was kind of this cliffy area, man, this, this other drainage was just, it just opened up like Daniel ripped a bugle down into this hole and it was, I mean, this, this big drainage, it split into a left-hand fork and a right-hand fork. And then the middle of that, there was this, this giant patch of timber that just went absolutely bonkers. 
So, you know, it's like seven 30 in the morning and Holy cow. We got it's, it's on. Yeah. Like, like rut fest. Yeah. Rut fest. And so to, at this point, we really hadn't seen a bull with cows other than this one this morning. Like it was just starting, right? It's kind of that seventh and eighth is when they start, you start seeing cows with bulls. And, and so, um, yeah, so it was just kind of kicking off pretty hard that morning. So we got around that corner, started looking in or, you know, calling into that timber pocket and, and they're just nothing coming out of it. So we kept, so then we sort of refocused our efforts back into that bottom and started glassing and, and, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bulls. We got yeah. spotted in this, in this quarter mile square. Like, Holy I mean, smokes. it's just, they're just everywhere and they just keep popping out of this timber pocket. And, uh, so then we spotted, we spotted the bull I ended up shooting, which was, we spotted him. This was the first time we realized that he was a, a true seven on both sides. And it was like, man, and he's, they have dropped off this edge and they've gone all the way down on this bottom. And then they've, they've taken this left-hand fork of this Canyon up and uh, we see him on the hillside and we see the cows up in front of him. And so, you know, as he took those cows down through there, that's what lit those bulls up. Right. And so he probably had one that was a little bit hot and, you know, just, he drug them through there. And then he, of course, he's fighting all those guys off or, or screaming at him, telling them to stay away. And, uh, Man, I, I looked at Daniel and I said, well, I guess we're going in. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it's at that point when you get engaged on a good bull like that, it's, you just make the decision right then. It's like, we're going to be in this all day and, right. that, and that's okay. And I think that's another thing that really endears me to elk hunting, right? Is just the, is the all day piece of it. I think people that, you know, wonder, you know, how, what makes you most successful in an elk hunt? And it's like, be with them as yeah. long as you can be with them. Don't go home and take a nap in the middle of the day. If <laughs> yeah. you got them where they're bedded down, stay there with them. You know, yeah. it, it, there's a lot of people don't realize that. People ask me like, you know, how can you carry so much stuff in your pack? It's like, well, when I lay down to take a nap at 11 o'clock, uh -huh. I like to have a pad <laughs> and I like to have a nice down jacket. And I like, yeah. you know, I like to have these things because it's worth it to me and yeah. I'll haul, I'll haul the extra weight. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that's just crazy about the weight in my pack. So yeah. anyway, um, so we dropped off that edge, you know, and it was probably about, I don't know, 800 to a thousand feet deep. We dropped mm -hmm. into that hole and, and this unit's just full of lodge poles. So when you'd get into the timber, there's not a lot of cover. Right. So those lodgepole forests have a lot of down timber. And so it's not like horrible deadfall. It's, you know, you can navigate it, but, but it's, there's also a lot of shooting in that timber because it is lodgepoles. Yeah, exactly. I actually love lodgepoles. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so we worked our way down through there and we were being pretty careful, just making sure that we were glassing a lot and, and checking this, you know, making sure we weren't bumping anything. Right. And so we got across that lodgepole section and we got into this bottom and it was nice green grass and there was a spring and and uh at this point we had pretty good interaction with the bull and we were kicking back and forth with him and so i'd you know i'd run up 50 yards and and daniel'd stay back and he'd call and the bull would scream and then daniel would move up and i'd move up and then daniel would move up and i moved up and we did that about four or five times you know covered a couple hundred yards and and uh the last time that daniel came up to me uh we were we were in too close. We yeah. got, we just got a little bit too far because it was thick enough at this point. We'd worked our way past those lodge poles. And now 
there was enough in this bottom to hide all of these elk. And at this point, I'm standing next to a wallow mm -hmm. and I don't have a lot of shooting lanes. I got one really good one. Mm -hmm. And uh, Daniel's about 10 yards behind me. And so, man, I bet you we were in that mode for 30 to 45 minutes of just back and forth with this bull and screaming and, and then, you know, interactions and um, engaging on cows and them coming through my, you know, I had cows walking through my shooting lane. Right. Um, and then this one cow, she came back through the shooting lane and, and the bull was just, just off to the right of my shooting lane, about 15 yards. And I could see him just really through the tight timber. I could just pick up his antlers and his eye. And he was really looking for that bull that was screaming, which was right. Daniel. Right. And he couldn't see him, which is, which is why he froze up. He's, he's like, you're, you're close enough and you're loud enough. I ought to be able to see who you are. Right. And, right. and when and he I'll, couldn't and, see it, you know, I was going to say one, one thing that's unique about when you're in that situation where a bull does have a bunch of satellite bulls around that he's trying to keep off. But one thing that I've noticed is that he has seen so many bulls that morning that you have to be in really tight because he's almost got to see that bull before he commits to chasing him off. Yeah. You know it's got to I mean? feel like, yeah, it's got to feel like a threat to him. He's got to, you got to be on top of him. You got to be tight. Yeah. So, so anyway, one of the cows comes through my shooting lane and she, uh, you know, she kind of turns her head back and starts licking her back. And I'm, I'm like, man, they, they do that a lot right before they bed down. And sure enough, boy, she just, she started to bed wow. down and I didn't, I didn't have enough cover to just stand there and have a stare down with her for three hours. If that's what it took. Right. Uh, so I just dropped, I, I got down as fast as I could. And I was behind a, a live pine tree that, that had tipped over. And so mm -hmm. I had, you know, I had some vertical branches around me that had pine needles on them and such. And I sat there for 15 or 20 minutes and I'm thinking to myself, man, if I could just get out of this, yeah. we could probably loop this bull. He's not leaving his cows if they're bedding down around him. Maybe right. we could get a shot. So I thought, well, man, my only shot is to just belly crawl underneath this big, thick pine tree that's right behind me, which is where Daniel was. Mm -hmm. And so I started my belly crawl and about five minutes into it, I'm peeking over my shoulder and she gets up and just walks off. Mm -hmm. Didn't see me just, yeah. you know, whatever. She just took a little, just kicked back for a few minutes and then off she went. And at this point, the whole herd kind of went off into this and that, that whole Canyon split again. And so right. they went and we, we figured that they went up that left, the left side of that next split. And so, man, at that point it was about 11 o'clock and Dan and I, it's like, well, let's just move off of this, this wallow in case something comes in and we'll, we'll sit up about 50 yards away from it and have our lunch and take us a nap. And so that's what we did about, I think the active hours fired back up about one, uh, the bull bugled at one fifteen. First time we'd heard him since 11. Right. And, uh, so it was kind of like, well, let's see if we can, let's see if we can get him to dance. And right. so we worked up, uh, that next split was really quite small. It just had a, about a hundred foot tall Ridge on it. And, uh, and so we worked our way up the right side, which gave us right. We didn't have any wind issues. There's a big enough Canyon. The prevailing stayed down, down canyon all morning which was great we might, i think we had enough cloud cover that that never really got the thermals fired up right oh so, didn't start uh, swirling on you no we had a couple of sketchy moments but uh obviously it, it never they never busted us so 
we had him talking back and forth and he was just those lazy bedded bugles and, and you know, whatever, but he didn't really want to engage again. You were trying to get him to come pick up us as a cow and a, and a bull. And, yeah. uh, he, he was pretty happy with what he had. So anyway, we, we, we played that game for a while and, and probably about two thirty, I climbed up on that Ridge and, and the bull was under a hundred yards from me. Right. And it was across this little tight draw. And, uh, but it was all lodge poles again. Right. So I knew I couldn't like drop into that draw and sneak up below from below him. Cause I, he would just see me and he was right on the edge of this great big opening that if I was looking at him, the opening ran from left to right. And it was probably a mile long or, or at least a half mile long. It looked like a, from a satellite imagery, it looks like a giant golf hole, right? Just this beautiful big fairway. And they were bedded right on the edge of that. And so we, we danced with him for a while and, and he just, he didn't want to hang out. So, uh, I bought, I dropped back off that Ridge and we hung out, uh, Daniel and I, you know, just, that was about three. That was the end of active hours. The bull kind of shut up at that point. And, uh, so we just kicked back for another couple hours and, and ate some more snacks and took a couple, maybe a couple five minute naps. And then about five o'clock, it was like, well, it's, it's go time again. Let's get into position. And so we both climbed up on that Ridge and, and, uh, you know, he made a couple of small bugles, but nothing, nothing major. It was kind of like, well, he's still there. Right. And then we didn't hear nothing. And, you know, we didn't hear nothing. We didn't hear nothing. And we're trying, we're bugling and we got, now we got bulls coming in from behind us we don't see them, but they're coming to what we're to all this ruckus. And so I looked at Daniel and I said, man, we, we need to figure out where he is like, or we got to decide to go hunt some of these other bulls. Right. And, uh, he said, well, let me, let me see if I can raise him on the, on the horn one more time. And then <laughs> he gave him a good bugle and, and that bull responded, but he had moved up Canyon a long ways. Right. And I, I looked Which at Dan. I mean, that's exactly why you want to stay on them like that. Yeah, because I can't tell you how many times I've made the mistake of, okay, they're bedded right here. We'll come back and hunt them this afternoon and you leave. And sometime during the day they get up and they, and the next thing you know, they're a full ridge over and you don't even know it because you left, you know, Yep. you you were on them. Yeah, that's good. So, so he responds and then, you know, I, I looked at Daniel and I, I used an an expletive and I said, that son of a gun. That's not what I said. <laughs> yeah. That son of a gun left and he didn't even say goodbye. And I think this is where, you know, when, when you really try to explain elk hunting to people and it's that, it's that next level of interaction. It's like, I hung out with him all day. Yeah. Like, and then he just left. It was like, dude, that's not cool. Without a courtesy bugle or anything. Yeah. I mean, granted, <laughs> I am trying to kill him. So there yeah, is that, yeah, but, yeah. uh, but, uh, so I looked at Daniel and I said, well, now we know where he is. Let's go. And so we cut across that, that small bottom and, and got up in that, that big open fairway, as I called it, that was about 30 degrees. It was steep, but yeah. we just side hilled it and, uh, being open like that, we were able to cover a ton of country and we got in, we kept getting in these little rises where we'd have to glass a bunch just to make sure we weren't running up on top of him. And we got to this last little spot and, and Daniel spotted him and he was up in front of us about 120 yards in the timber. And he was just raking the heck out of this, this down pine tree. And I had probably 40 yards of being exposed that I needed to cover, but this was it. You know, if he, if he kept moving away from us, he was going to run up into some private 
And, uh, so I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give it a shot. So I dropped, I dropped my pack right there next to Daniel and he stayed there. And I got down, I, I, there was a big boulder below us. And I, I said, if I can get to that, he'll lose sight of me. And so I just slipped down in there and I never took my eyes off of him and he, he never put his eyes on me. So, uh, we got to that spot or I got to that spot. And then, man, at that point it was like, okay, so where are the cows? I, I don't see the cows. And, and I, I look up to my left and, and, and he's that there's two cows that just slip into this tight little timber patch and it's like dark, right? It's yeah. super narrow. Okay. Well, I don't see any other ones. So I slip into this bottom and now I'm in this bottom and I'm with this bull and I'm 40 yards from him, but I don't have a shot there. You know, he's got all of these limbs from this down pine tree all around him. And so, so I'm like, well, I, I, I'm running out of cover. Right. right. I need him to give me a shot or, um, that's really it. I don't have another move to make at this point. And so he actually stops raking this tree and he starts to move off. And I'm like, Oh man, I'm so close. Don't, don't bail on me now, you know? And, uh, he moved about 10 yards away from me maybe and started raking another tree. Right. And then like he got done, he raked that tree for about a minute and then he backed away from it and just let out this bugle. And I think Daniel was sitting up there with his tube, like on his mouth, waiting for that bull to bugle, because as soon as he bugled, Daniel just cut him off and told him, like, basically told him, I'm here to kick your trash. Right, right, right. And that bull. And this is the difference, right? You and I talk about this is the difference between the evening and the morning. That yeah. bull, he was tired of us. Yeah. He was tired of us being with him. He didn't, he was irritated. And that, and it's just about creating emotion, right? People are like, well, how do you know what call to use? And it's just like, just piss him off. You, you got to figure him. out how to, yeah, make him mad. Yeah. Um, invoke emotion. That's what Daniel says. He's like, I just try to invoke a, an emotional response from them because right. then they, then they can't help it. And so, right. When Daniel cut him off, that bull whirled around and looked up that canyon like, I can't believe you guys. (laughs) How dare you? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, he started moving back towards me and he got probably within 25 yards of me, but he was behind this great big juniper and I, and he was there, but I couldn't see through it. You know, they're pretty thick. Yeah. And uh, he ripped off that bugle and I got to feel that, you know, the vibration of the, yeah of the world around Blow me. your hat off your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was really awesome to be in that tight. I just didn't have a shot, but I knew if he was going to go challenge Daniel, that he was going to have to go above me and, and moving from my right to left. And so I kind of dropped back into that draw a little bit further and I had a really good opening above me. And so he started walking from my right to left and he got into this first opening. And then I saw him, he kind of went behind another tree so I ripped the bow back. I thought, oh man, this is going to be perfect. Well, I don't know if he stopped or just was moving really slow, but he didn't come out the backside in the amount of time that I felt was necessary. So I let down. I was like, I don't want to get hung up. Right. And, and so I, and I said, I'll have other opportunities. So I let down and about five seconds went by and he, he popped back out and he's just moving up. He's, you know, he's now he's dead broadside with me, slightly quartering away working his way up the hill, right to left. And, uh, I'm like, well, he's going to go behind that smaller one, that smaller tree. As soon as his head's behind it, I'm going to rip this bow back. And that's what happened. He went behind it. I pulled my bow back. Um, he started, he came out the other side. He had absolutely no idea that I was there. 
Right. And uh, I was just getting ready to chirp at him. And I always keep a I always keep a diaphragm in, you know, in my mouth and elk reed in my mouth while I'm in that mo in that moment because, you know, a little cow call or whatever might just seal the deal. And so I was getting ready to chirp at him and he he took a little bit of a step to the right and gave me a more quartering away shot and he stopped. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I was shooting that new Garmin site, um, the A1i Pro, mm-hmm. and uh, man, I hit the button, and the pin showed up on the on the site, and I shot him perfect. You know, <laughs> you know, quartering away and uphill, you want to shoot him a little bit back and a little bit low, and yeah. I crushed him. Yeah, and uh, and so um, he went. He literally ran straight at Daniel and ran by him about 15 yards above him. And, uh, he died about 20 yards behind Daniel didn't go a hundred yards. And from this point, he probably went about 80 yards. And so he tipped over there. And so and you guys we, saw him go down. We didn't see him, but we heard a, we heard the moan, you know, yeah. we, we heard the moan and, and it was like, so we gave him 20 minutes and, you know, we went back to where I shot him and looked at the blood and, you know, it was yeah. funny after I shot him, I like ran straight at Daniel. Yeah. Cause I was so excited. Right. And I knew, and Daniel's bugling at him and I'm cow calling at him and we're just trying, I just want him to stop. Right. Right. Um, and so we went back to where I'd shot him and, and, uh, found the blood and then we just followed the blood for a while. And of course it, it took us right to him and, right. uh, yeah, we found him. It was uh, about seven fifteen, I think when I shot him at, at awesome. night. So we started the day at, you know, first light, which whatever that was, I think the first time we saw him was probably seven ish yeah. in the morning. And then, and then I shot him at seven 30 and, and, uh, you so know, all in like 13 hours. Yeah. To this point, now we got to yeah. take pictures. Oh, yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> to, to when you got him and uh, before the work began, but it, we, did, uh, did you have to take him out that 800 to thousand foot hole? No, no. So the further up that Canyon that we went after him, the closer we got to the edge where, you know, there was actually a road that comes around that spot above us. And when, when we hauled the first load, well, when we, where he died, Daniel and I were talking to each other. It's like, I think we're about 200 yards from the road. Right. It's like right above us. Right. And there's, there's some cliffy stuff right there. And so we were just trying to make sure we found the right spot to get up. And we did, it was just straight up the hill. It took longer to, to put the meat on the pack than it did to walk up the hill to the oh, road. Oh, dude, that is so lucky. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. So, yeah, so we we got done hauling it up to the road and and you know pictures and breaking him down and hauling it up to the road. We were it was about one thirty. Yeah. yeah. And by the time we got down to the razor, which was about a two two and a half mile hike down, it was yeah. easy. It was all we just got on the road. Um, it was about two. 2.30, we got back to camp about 3, all said and done with, you know, him loaded in the truck and 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 whatnot. And so, yeah, it was a long day. Well, yeah, long day, but what a what a cool story. What a cool hunt. Um, and congrats, because Thanks, I, I'm sure that most people haven't seen pictures of this bull there. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a couple published here pretty soon. But, man, he's gorgeous. Like, yeah. that was uh, – that was really cool. Like I said, I, you know, I'm here. I am showing you the pictures of my bull that I shot and it's impressive enough to where you stick your phone right back in your pocket. Holy crap. You killed a big one. <laughs> uh, and, um, so that's awesome. So what's, 
what is the next hunt on your agenda this year? Are you even going to have time? Yeah, I got one more. I'm going to Kansas in, uh, at the end of this month, I leave on the 29th Ah. and I'll be hunting from the 30th through the fifth. And then I come home. So, and I I'm fairly, uh, fairly familiar with where you hunt in Kansas. I think, I think I'm only going to be an hour from you. Yeah. If I kill a big buck, I'm going to bring him over there and, and, and show him to you and, and try and take my revenge for the elk picture. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you did anything like you did during elk season. I'm not going to want to show you. Um, so, uh, we're, we're getting pretty close to the end of this thing here. Um, but uh, I gotta, I gotta do it. Bow launch is coming up. Give us, is there any nuggets? Is there any nuggets that we can squeeze out of, uh, out of Zach for what we can expect and what we've got coming in the pipeline? Nope. No nuggets, man. I'm a, you know, zero, uh, not giving you anything. I mean, there's going to be some good stuff. We do it every year. Right. So, um, there's some good stuff. There's some exciting stuff. I'm, I'm loving the bow I'm shooting right now. So really, I, I think everybody else will love the, love the new ones. Um, you know, we're coming. Oh, I think our, I think our launch this year is going to be in that early part of December. Um, you know, traditionally we do it in October, but you know, with since COVID and everything that's gone on, we we've kind of moved back a little bit. So yeah, yeah it's going to be around the first part of, of December when our launch hits. Um, and we're excited about it. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I've always been the guy, people always ask me, can you tell me anything? And it's like, nope, I'll tell you everything when we launch, but not until then, (laughs) until then, I'm not telling you anything, but you know, it's, it's, it's something from my, from my perspective, from, from the team's perspective, something that I really focused on is, is improving our delivery. You know, it's Mm -hmm. been tough. We, We know it's not something we're proud of. Right. Um, and I, I just want, first thing I want to do is thank everybody that, you know, as a Hoyt loyalist, or even those guys or, or, or ladies that have just chosen to shoot Hoyt over the years. Thanks for being patient with us. Uh, I promise you it's, it's high on my list to, to improve our delivery. Um, that's not a, that's not a light switch. That's right. uh there's some serious stuff that has to happen, but, but we're dedicated to that. And, uh, and we're dedicated to, to continuing to build and push the limits on, on, uh, high-end archery products so well we've got an uh, another archineer <laughs> is is that still a common phrase that they use around oh the yeah south? Yep. uh the the engineers at hoyt like to call themselves themselves archineers and uh we've got one at the helm again um and uh and a hardcore bow hunter at the helm again um i think the future's bright um can you can you give us anything about where you see things in five to 10 years? What your, any of your, any of your goals? I mean, yeah. I mean, the one I just talked about is a really big one, right? Big one. Um, delivery, d- delivery, getting things um, out the door quicker, you know, stronger interaction with the consumer base. I mean, you know, we're a dealer, we have a dealer uh, business plan. You know, yeah. We use, you know, that's, that's how we, we, we use pro shops to yes. help extend the service that is necessary. But, you know, in, in all of that, we want to try to have good, strong communications and relationships with our consumers. So, um, you know, we're going to be working on that type of stuff and we're going to be continuing to push the envelope as much as we can and uh, drive quality, drive better delivery, um, all of that stuff. And, um, 
who knows where the next 10 years are, man. I don't even know where next month is. I, I, it's running so fast these days that, uh, I'm just hanging on and, and hoping we're making the right moves where we are, but I'm confident we are because the moves we're making is, is, you know, it's for the consumer and for the right. dealer and, and trying to do the right thing for them. So I'm excited about the future. Uh, I'm excited about the brand. It's strong as it's ever been. Thanks to the consumers for, 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 you know, buying our stuff. Cause Holy cow. Uh, we had a big back order this year and it right. was, it was nuts. And, right. and, uh, that we don't get to do this, right. I don't get to have my dream job without all of the consumers that are buying our products. So, so thanks for that. Well, you've got your work cut out for you this year, buddy, because I've been saying all fall, it's going to be hard for me to put my RX five down this year. <laughs> it's going to be hard. Um, so challenge I, accepted. All right. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, buddy. It's always a good time with you. We'll do it again. Um, I hope everybody got a good look into uh, uh, what's going on at Hoyt. Maybe learned a little bit about Hoyt history uh, at the same time. Um, so we appreciate your time, brother, and we'll talk to you sometime soon. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Thanks, Danny.